couple of announcements. Um, some of you still have children at home. We know because you left them in that end of the building. Um, and in the summers, we give the, the faithful volunteers that serve during the school year a break from serving in children's ministry so that they can have a break from serving in children's ministry. But what that means is some of you need to volunteer. And we need you to volunteer because you don't like it when we leave them alone back there. Um, uh, seriously, uh, during the summer especially, we have to re-up and, and we, we need some volunteers in June and July. Some of you might be, God may be speaking to you. It's one of the greatest opportunities to serve in the, in the body of Christ. Kids are incredible. They will say anything. You can find out what their parents are really like. Just sit down with them and grill them. Well, does your dad really? We owned a child care center when Julie and I first married, and all the parents were real nice because after a while they figured out we knew. You know what I'm saying? So there are all kinds of ways to enjoy working in children's ministry. I'd encourage you to consider it, and you'll get a gray T-shirt. So secondly, some of you are engineers, and you don't like people whether big people or little people, you really just, you just don't like people. Let's face it. Engineers like machines. They like things that are predictable. They like, you know, zeros and ones. And, and for you, you can work in the AV department with sound or AV because we have a need for that. And you'll just have your little machines and y'all can have a moment together and it will serve the body of Christ. And so if, if, if you're one of those engineers who doesn't like people, we have opportunities back there. By the way, we, are, we have around 500, 400 to 500 people to watch the streaming every week. So we're upgrading the sound for the streaming and um, we're putting a whole new lighting system in this month because our old one broke, and so we're going to have new toys, which is what I'm saying. You engineers, new toys. If you want to volunteer in AV, we'd love to have you. So, And, and I haven't done this in a long time. Uh, Sixteen years ago, before I was lead pastor, I taught an adult class called the Slow Learners, Sojourners. And, um, and in the Sojourners, once a quarter, I gave out moon pies. And, and so... Um, we, we, would have, we had about 100, 110 people in the class every week, and every once a quarter we'd have Moon Pie Sunday, and we would give people awards. And, and, and so that's why if you look in the worship guide, every Sunday someone gets a Moon Pie. But I don't throw the Moon Pies anymore until today. Because Chuck Wright came and, I mean Chuck, Chuck, Ryan came and whined about not getting a moon pie. Now, I don't know if I can throw a moon pie that far, so if you're between me and that corner, you might keep your eyes open because there's a moon pie coming. After all, it's the third service. At this point, who cares, right? So, I mean, I, I've, I've lost all inhibitions. Uh, it's just so sorry. I, yeah, it had a soft landing. If you nuke it for five seconds, they're edible, I promise. So... Uh, Chuck, uh, his moon pie, I don't know what he did to get a moon pie, but he's got a moon pie, so. Uh, uh, any rate, with an RC Cola, it'll change your life. The, now there's supposed to be a sermon here. Um, we've been looking at the life of Elijah, and Elijah's a, a, I called him the dude of the Old Testament. He's one of the most powerful men of all of Scripture. 
But we come to chapter 19 of 1 Kings, and it's a passage that I think is particularly poignant today. Interestingly, it's one that uh, scholars treat very differently. And, and I think the way some scholars treat it could not be further from wrong. Because in this story, Elijah suffers something that many in Christianity don't have room for. Um, if you've been around Christians long, you'll know that there are some who take verses like Romans 28, 28, uh, and and say, you know, if you're really a Christian, Jesus makes it all okay. It kind of sounds like that if you ever get sad or depressed or discouraged, then it's got to be something wrong with you, right? Have any of you ever felt that pressure? Have you ever kind of heard this message that that if you love Jesus, then, then, well, you should always be happy? You know, clap your hands, stomp your feet. But the reality is, that's not only not what happens among Christians. I don't believe the Bible teaches it. I mean, Jesus himself wept. Jesus himself at Gethsemane prayed with such tears that it said he sweated drops of blood. Uh, Jesus, Jesus showed despair and heartache and pain at times because life is difficult. He said himself, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So this passage addresses a really simple issue. Is it okay for us Christians to hurt? And some scholars see this story and they say, well, He must be bad because here he's hurting. But I don't think that's what the passage teaches at all. So if you have a Bible and want to turn, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that Elijah shows up. We know nothing about him except for he's a Tishbite. And and he goes to Ahab, who is the worst king that the northern kingdom of Israel has ever had. Idolatry, infant sacrifice, all kinds of evil is going on throughout the land. And, and he walks, Elijah walks up to Ahab the king and says, it's not going to rain until I tell it it can. See ya. And as a result of his prophetic word, a famine and drought is so severe that there's starvation throughout the land. But God's not through with Elijah. He, he takes him off out on his own, and he, he puts him through a, a time of testing. He, he takes him to a wadi or a ravine and, and feeds him through the brook in that ravine and through the supernatural provision of ravens who bring him food. But when the brook drives up, God takes him to Sidon, where the evil queen Jezebel is from and where Baal worship began. And in that context, he provides for him through a pagan woman, But God uses those times to build Elijah's faith because if you remember, the woman's widow's son dies and and God uses Elijah to raise him from the dead. So you you see this man of God who first shows real courage in going to Ahab and then shows a real learning heart as God instructs him and strengthens his faith. Then last week is the big... It's the Super Bowl, the prophetic Super Bowl, because he goes to Mount Carmel, and and he says to Ahab, the evil king, 
if, if you bring the prophets of Baal, and there are 450 of them, we'll see who's God. And, and they, you remember, they, they literally have a showdown on top of the mountain. They, they set up altars, and the 450 prophets of Baal put on quite a show all day long, slashing themselves, dancing, crying out to their God, and nothing happens. And then Elijah bows his head in earnest prayer. The book of James said he is a guy just like us, but he prayed fervently. And God sends down fire from heaven, and it consumes everything. Pretty cool. In fact, I, uh, by the way, you can't really understand Shakespeare unless you know the Bible because it's full of biblical references. You really don't understand a lot of what goes on in the New Testament if you don't know what goes on in the Old Testament. Remember when the, the Lord sends his disciples out to teach and, and some towns reject them and the disciples say, hey, Lord, this bring fire down from heaven on them? I think it's referring to this as well as Sodom and Gomorrah. But it would be kind of cool if you could do it, you know. College station, zap! I mean, just think about it. I just, you okay? You Okay. Someone sprung a leak. I think it's all right. Uh, um, and so, you know, he has this incredibly high moment, this incredibly significant moment. And he's seen God work. And, and because of him, the, the people destroy the 450 idolatrous priests. And then something really odd happens. If you will look at me at, with, with me at 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to see the despair of a prophet. 1 Kings 19, Ahab the king told Jezebel the queen everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Now, there's a lesson in here. 450 prophets didn't worry him, but one woman did. One woman did. Uh, Jezebel is portrayed as one of the most evil people in all of Scripture. And, and her husband was scared of her, and the nation was scared of her, and she brought incredible evil into the nation of Israel. So Elijah runs for his life, and he came to Beersheba in Judah. Beersheba is the southernmost town in the, in the southern tribe of Judah. It is a significant town in the history of Israel. It, all of the patriarchs, uh, Abraham dug a well there, and, and there are some significant things that happened there. But the point is, he went way south, several days' journey, and he left his servant there. Some of the rabbis believe that his servant may have been the widow's son whom he had raised from the dead. But it seems to be an indication that he left his servant there because he's, he's done with his ministry. And while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, and he came to a broom tree, which is a desert tree, and sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than any of my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. 
Now, this is where some writers really jump on his case. How could a man of God become this discouraged? How Doesn't he know Romans 8, 28 for crying out loud? I mean, how, how could someone who has had such significant spiritual victories come to this point? And they really condemn him for it. You know what the problem I have with that is? It condemns everyone who struggles with the loss of hope. Don't buy a form of Christianity that says that if you love Jesus, life will never be hard. In fact, Scripture says that in many ways, loving Jesus makes life harder. Utopia, the the perfect life of no difficulty, is called heaven. That comes after we die. But the reality is that Great men and women of Scripture and of church history have struggled with depression. A loss of hope is not a totally irrational response to what life can bring. God does not condemn Elijah for getting to this point. God does not condemn Elijah for getting to this point. A number of years ago, I was in a, a bad way, and I met with a, a Christian leader whom I knew well, and he said, are you depressed? And I said, yeah, I'm depressed. He said, well, you haven't thought about suicide, have you? And I thought, well, it seems like a relief, doesn't it? And he goes off with his hair on fire telling people I'm all suicidal. And I'm thinking, well, that's not helpful. That's just not helpful. But, but we bought this view of Christianity that if you love Jesus... It's never hard. Well, that's just not true. We live in an incredibly dark world. Every one of us brings our own sin with us, right? Much of the problems I get into, I created because of my own sinfulness. But that doesn't mean there are less problems. We live in a very dark world. We live around other people who are sinful. We experience betrayal and disappointment and heartache. There are evil people like Ahab and Jezebel in everyone's lives. And to deny that that could ever impact you, ever cause you to be depressed and sad and lose hope is to tell many people who are doing the best they can that somehow God doesn't love them when they're hurting. And I don't read that in Scripture. If anything, what I read in Scripture, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Uh, Elijah is a man who says, I've given my whole life, Lord, to serving you. But the results aren't any better than anybody went before me. I'm no better than my ancestors. I've done all I know to do. I've tried my very best, and it just seems as though we're making no progress. So I just rather be with you. I'd rather be with you. So he lay down under a tree and fell asleep, verse 5, and all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night 
and the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now notice, the first thing he needed to do was get some rest and eat. The Greeks tried to separate people from that which is physical and or material and that which is non-material. That is not a biblical worldview. In the Bible, our physical being is intertwined with our spiritual emotional being. When, when we are physically tired, when we're hungry, when we're exhausted, that affects our spiritual well-being. That, that's why, notice the first thing he does. He says, go to sleep. And then he feeds him and gives him water. Uh, in Scripture, the physical and the spiritual are melded together. They're not separated. That's why Scripture says, take care of yourself. The body is the temple of God. It's, it's care for yourself physically also implies care for your soul spiritually. They're not separated. They're not separated. So the first thing he does is he says, Elijah, get a good nap. There, there are no telling how many problems we could avoid if we would take a nap, right? Um, and get something to eat. And then after he had been refreshed, he sends him on to the mountain. Uh, it says specifically the mountain, the mountain of the Lord. And most people believe that's Mount Sinai, where the Lord had given Moses the Ten Commandments. If it is, depending on which mountain you take to be Mount Sinai, and that's debated, it was about a 240-mile walk from where he was south of Beersheba. Now, obviously, 240 miles will not take you 40 days, typically. They were used to putting some miles on. But So one thing that's going on here is Elijah is representing the people of Israel because he, like Israel, will wander in the desert for 40 days. For, for the number 40. In his case, 40 days, not 40 years. Interestingly, our Lord, during his temptation, will be out in the wilderness for 40 days. The, these themes go throughout Scripture. But God sends him down to the mountain, and he goes into a cave, and he rests. Many scholars believe, now this is really interesting, that the cave is what the Old Testament referred to as the cleft of the rock that Moses hid himself in when he asked God to pass before him. Remember that? He asked God, may I see your face? And God said, you can't see my face, only my back. And he hided him, hided my, that's an old hymn. He hid him in the cleft of the rock and covered his face, and he saw the Lord's back pass by. Many believe that Elijah's in exactly the same location here, which will become significant as we go further along. He spends the night, and what does the Lord do? He asks Elijah, what are you doing here, son? What are you doing? When our emotions take hold, one of the things we need is to move to the rational. Uh, the Lord is saying to Elijah, think about it. Don't just feel about it. Think about it. What are you doing here? Uh, take a moment and consider. What is it you're hoping for? What is it you're, you're yearning for? What is it you're thinking? What are you doing here? 
That's not to say your emotions are bad. Emotions are crucial. They're a significant part of who we are. Educators say that if you know a truth cognitively, you will not live out that truth completely until you've felt it emotionally. The reality is because we are one being, emotions are incredibly significant. They affect our physical well-being and our emotional well-being. But we get into trouble when we disassociate our emotions from the reality of the truth, what we know. So what does God say? Elijah, think about it. What are you doing here? Verse 10, Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one now left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, most of what Elijah says is true. The people have turned their backs on God. They have killed most of the prophets. They have rejected God. But Elijah's not the only one. He knows that Obadiah last week set aside 100 prophets and saved them in the caves. What does this tell us? Elijah knows how he feels, and how he feels is controlling everything. And the Lord said, verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It's interesting, uh, just as an aside, how, how goofy we get when a celebrity is going to come by. Um, you know, you, 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 you get in a context and it just, it just can make you crazy. When Julie and I had been married 30 years, we took our first trip to Europe and, and we were in London which was cool. I like London. It's, they speak English there. And, um, and we happened to go by Buckingham uh, Palace when they were celebrating the Queen's 80th birthday. And so what I thought was going to be a walk by Buckingham Palace seemed, ended up being four or five hours, what seemed like four or five days, standing on the side of the road waiting for the Queen to pass by. And and she's just a little old lady with a hat. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry, it just wasn't, I like your hat, but it just, I mean, really, it just, it wasn't worthy of four or five hours. And they can't, you know, they would come by in different, they love uniforms there. I mean, bands and different uniforms, medieval uniforms, all colors. There was one marching band riding on horses. I mean, it just went on and on and on and on. And finally, the queen gets up on her porch and gives it this, you know. And 100,000 people go crazy because the queen passed by. Julie loved it. <laughs> it was four or five days, I'm telling you. Um, but can you imagine the God of the universe saying, step out, I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to pass by you. I don't know about you, but all kinds of ideas come to my mind, and the passage deals with several of them. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains and tore them apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in an earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. Earth, wind, and fire. Where'd that come from? Have you ever noticed 
how often when we're discouraged or struggling, we want God to do pyrotechnics. We want God to step in and do something that really draws attention. We want him to do a miracle. We want him to part the Red Sea. We want him to change something dramatically. And we tell God, if you'd do something like that, I'd trust you much more easily. Uh, the story of Elijah kind of denies that because he's just seen pyrotechnics, hasn't he? He just saw the Lord bring fire down from heaven and destroy not only the bull of, of the sacrifice, but the whole altar. He has seen God act dramatically, and yet his faith is still struggling. So how does he experience God? And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I've thought about this passage for decades. And I'm convinced that the message of it is that, that when we're discouraged, a big show in the solution. When we're struggling in our faith, pyrotechnics don't build it. We find our faith in that quiet connection that we can have with God. That, that relational reality of the whisper in His Word, of His Word, because, because when we're struggling, we don't need a show. We need the assurance of his love. And, and so often we, we, we chase our spiritual tales by, by looking and longing for God to do some big event. And we get discouraged when he doesn't change this big issue in our lives. And, and what we really need is to, like Elijah, to, to stop and listen and hear him speak. Now, I can't prove it. I personally believe that that reference to the whisper is not only to the Lord's Word, but also to His Spirit, because the Spirit is often depicted in ways that are consistent with this. The, the, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is not specifically spoken of. The Trinity uh, is taught more clearly in the New Testament. I think this is a subtle reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer. But rather than condemn someone who's in despair, rather than telling them that somehow they're not worthy of God's love, what does God do? He whispers in his ear, what are you doing, Elijah? What are you doing? And Elijah says it so well, I've been zealous and I'm the only one left. And they're, now they're trying to kill me too. Look at verse 15. So the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. And also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahalah, to succeed you as prophet. And Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will, be put, will put to death 
any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, and Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied, what have I done to you? So Elisha left him, went back, and he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate, and he set them out, and then he set out to follow Elijah and became the attendant. This is why I don't believe the Lord in any way judges Elijah for his response, because what does he do? He assures him of the very thing he's struggling with. What does Elijah say? I've given it all my life and I've I've accomplished nothing. Nothing good has come of this. And I'm the only one. So what does the Lord say? No, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee, knee. And you're going to anoint the ones who will ensure that the work gets done. See, when we're hurting, we, we need to step back into perspective. The hurt is real and legitimate, and, and no one has a right to condemn that hurt. It's legitimate to hurt. It's a God-given emotion. It's a response to that which is evil and bad. But God then steps back, and it causes Elijah to step back and give him the broader perspective. First of all, you're not, your emotions have harmed your ability to see. There are 7,000 who still love God. And when we're down, we lose the ability to see clearly, don't we? But even more than God allows Elijah to be the one who will anoint Elisha, who will himself go on and and anoint the other two, who will fulfill the promises of judgment that Elijah has been banking on. Because while how I feel is legitimate, how I feel doesn't mean that God has quit working. God yet has a plan. He will yet be faithful to his promise. Uh, God didn't give up on humankind when we sinned. What did he do? He gave his son to die for the world. And no matter how badly it hurts to me at different times in my life, when I feel as though God is checked out, what I've found is that God yet intercedes. If, If I can gain the proper perspective and see his hand at work and also trust that He will fulfill his promises even when I don't feel like it. Depression is part of life. Discouragement is common to most of us at one time or another. And and when we imply that somehow loving Jesus and loving what is good and is right will keep us from ever being discouraged when we encounter the horrible evil in the world we live in, those two don't make sense. The answer is not to deny that it will ever hurt. The answer is instead to show what brings solace in the hurt, and that is the quiet assurance of the loving voice of God and the confidence that he will yet do his work just as he's promised. The interesting thing is, 
for those who say Elijah's really failed, they have to explain why Elijah goes on to be one of the great heroes of the faith. He is never referred to negatively. He, he throughout Scripture is a hero in spite of this discouragement. Because when you know what is holy and good, in some ways what is ugly and evil is more discouraging than it would have been otherwise. Some of you are discouraged. Legitimately. There are things in your life that have stolen your hope. Some of you are deeply saddened by loss or heartache. And so that when you come to church, you really feel like you need to hide how you feel because you don't want to deny Jesus by having that pain. Can I tell you by the authority of scriptures, Jesus loves you where you are. He hates evil and weeps more deeply over evil than any of us do. He does so much, he gave his life for it. We aren't called to put on a show of happiness when we're not. We are simply called to keep trusting the one who promises he loves us no matter what the circumstances. It's okay to hurt. It's reasonable to hurt. And it's okay to hurt in church. It's reasonable to hurt in church. And Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. My encouragement to you is that's where you are. Take some time with an open Bible in a quiet room and listen for the gentle voice of God. Because what you really need is the assurance that he loves you and the confidence that he cares and the faith that he will yet work just as he did for Elijah. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we can easily go grow discouraged. We live in a, a, a world that is crazy at times in its brokenness. And if we didn't have hope in you, we would have nothing. And Father, sometimes in our weakness, we lose that hope. Sometimes in our sadness, we no longer hear your voice. And I pray that you would meet us where we are not necessarily in thunder and lightning, but in the still, quiet voice of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Lord. We know you love us because you gave your Son. Help us learn to live out that love, even when things are hard. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.